1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be discussing the political impact of the terrorist attacks in Brussels and the latest round of Tory wars. do this, I'm delighted to be joined by the FT's Deputy Editor, Rula Kalaf, Political Editor, George Parker, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator, Gideon Rackman, and our Political Columnist, Janan Ganesh. Thank you all for joining. So we will begin with the appalling events that took place in Brussels this week. At least 34 people are dead after a series of bombs were set off in the Belgian capital and the terrorist group known as ISIS have claimed responsibility for it. Now the events could not have happened in a more volatile time in global politics, not least with the rise of Donald Trump and populism in America, the upcoming referendum on Britain's EU membership and the growing migrant crisis. So we're going to try and unpick this and begin with Rula Klaff. Um, what did you make of the global response to the Brussels attacks, very similar to what we heard after we had the events in Paris last year with people talking more about European security, more shared intelligence. And the question is, you know, is this going to be a frequent series of these events
2: now or is this still just an occasional one-off thing in your view? I think the emerging view after Brussels, and I think even before Brussels, was that... This is a kind of new normal in Europe, that we have to expect more terrorist attacks. And from what we know so far, and there are still a lot of outstanding questions, but from what we know so far, we are now looking at connections between the cell that perpetrated the Paris attacks and the cell that's now being held responsible for, the, for Brussels. And people are also talking about a supercell. So there is a network that seems to have now infiltrated Europe, and that does raise new questions about European security and what European governments should be doing about it. One thing that we have seen is the Belgium
1: um, government has come under a lot of scrutiny over the past few days for their inability, seems to share intelligence between the different compartments of their operations. Here, you know, is that something you see
2: changing in the near future? This came out criticism of Brussels came out even after the Paris attacks. But I think one does have to be careful because you need to have all the information before. On the surface, there does seem to be what I would say is more of a police failure. I don't think it's so much intelligence. I think it's, it seems to me that it's more of a police failure. On the other hand, it is extremely difficult, even when you know that there are a lot of returnees from Syria, for instance, to track them. Intelligence agencies tell you that you need like 15 people to be tracking one person. So while on the surface, I think, there's a lot of criticism and you can criticise. I just think it's, it's a lot more complicated than that.
1: Well, Gideon Rachman, the attack was obviously in Brussels, the heart of the European project there, which I think, you know, was very symbolic in a sense that Europe's not having an easy time of it at the moment, the, you know, with the migrant crisis, the potential deal with Turkey, obviously Greece, Britain, what have you. What do you see the response from European leaders being to this, to these events? Well, I think it's, it's interesting the response
3: both from European leaders and the debate in the wider Europe, because these events can be interpreted either in a, if you like, pro-European or an anti-European way, by which I mean, on one level, you can say this clearly shows that we need as Europeans to work much more closely together, to share intelligence, uh, you know, to to build up Europol, which is the, the EU policing operation. On the other hand, you have Eurosceptics, particularly in the UK, but elsewhere saying, actually, this is the fault of European integration. We should start building up walls, building up frontiers, you know, that that once once people can travel right across Europe without encountering a frontier, which you can do in the Schengen zone, that in itself is dangerous. Now, I think the truth probably lies somewhere in between, actually, but I fear that the politics of it will drive at least the politicians at least in the kind of visible areas to start doing more in terms of building up barriers and then behind the scenes i thought they'll be working on cooperation
2: i think it's worth noting that there've been plans talked about for the past 2 years about sharing more information passenger data for instance none of it has come to pass so i mean this is you know this is something that's been discussed a lot. So there are a lot of measures that could be taken that have not been taken.
3: Yeah, know there might be an impact on the European Parliament, which has been very protective of individual privacy rights when it comes to things like data sharing and uh, allowing intelligence services to look at internet traffic and so on. And I suspect that debate could move.
1: I suppose the question is, Gideon, you know, this is obviously vaguely far away from the referendum, but how is this going to affect the EU debate in Britain? Well, I think,
3: as you say, it is, it is some way ahead. But it's possible that the shock of the Brussels attack will have faded by late June when we vote. On the other hand, there could could be further attacks. And I'm afraid it does play to a kind of rather visceral sense that you you mentioned, which is that people think You know, we do have the channel. Maybe we can kind of fall back on that and just retreat behind it and hope that, you know, things do seem to be a bit worse at the moment in Belgium and France. Britain hasn't had a really serious attack since 2005. So there may be a tendency to think, well, you know, our security services are on top of this. Those other guys aren't. So, you know, perhaps we can just look after ourselves. I think that probably is a delusion because even though we have border checks and that is helpful... It's quite rare to see anybody actually picked up crossing one of these borders because all they've got to do is show their passport. So we're still in the free movement zone and I don't think
1: anyone's questioning that just yet. And I think that's the question, isn't it, Ruler, that a lot of people, have, we've heard a lot from politicians saying that, you know, Britain is now, I think it's on the highest level of alert now that an attack is very likely and British people will be thinking, you know, is London, is somewhere in the UK next?
2: Yes, I think a lot of people will be, thinking you know what is the next target and one of the most worrying things is the sort of adaptability of these of these terrorist cells you close one one door and they still find uh, another target and increasingly i mean they're always you know obviously they're looking for spectacular attacks but airport metro that's very very scary i think just to also pick up on something that gideon was saying the whole migrant crisis has Played into this debate a lot. And I think one of the things that people are confusing in their minds now is they're equating, oh, m- you know, more migrants, therefore more terrorism. And I think this is where, when thinking about, you know, more or, or less Europe, I think, you know, you, you need to look at the evidence and you need to look at exactly how people are getting radicalized, who are the people getting radicalized, the details actually matter a lot here.
3: Indeed, I mean, some of the Belgian jihadis, you know, they've been tracking actually not only their parents, but their grandparents were born in Belgium. Uh, You know, 20% of the Belgians who've gone to fight in uh, Syria are converts.
2: And, and they're petty criminals. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they get they get radicalised very, very Prisoners quickly. is
3: incredibly, uh, it seems to be where a lot of people get radicalised.
1: And I suppose this, this this instant reaction about this, we've seen with Donald Trump, Gideon, who has ever has offered his helpful two cents on this. And I suppose the problem is he gave an interview on British television um, this week where he said, you know, Muslim, basically he was pointing the finger at uh, Muslims in Belgium, saying they're protecting their own, they're not sharing information. And the problem that you have was that um, the, the fellow who was arrested as part of the Paris bomber was being hit, was being hidden by his True. friends and family. And so it creates this atmosphere where someone with toxic views like Trump um resonates with people.
3: Well, I mean, I think the interesting thing about that interview is he was interviewed by Piers Morgan, who then wrote a very sympathetic article about Trump's views, repeating the refrain, is he so wrong, in the Daily Mail, which is a paper that has been bashing this whole migrant line. So It's not that people are saying, oh, my goodness, this is absurd. Actually, people will begin to listen to Trump and Trump-like views in this current atmosphere.
2: It's a very appealing conclusion for people to think, right, a lot of, you know, a lot of Muslims are coming into our societies. There's a lot more terrorism and these things, you know, that there's a causal relationship here. But I don't think that the evidence necessarily suggests that there is any relationship. I suppose the problem is people tend to feel
1: their hearts over their heads in this situation. That you know, and we saw there was a that you know that you always get these kind of backlash people saying things, and we've seen this week that a man in Croydon just went up to a, a Muslim woman, just started asking her to explain what happened in mm. Brussels, and was then arrested for hate speech. I believe yeah, yeah. so. You get you get those kind of incidents that fall back from these things, don't you know? And winning that argument is going to is is hard, and I think it's probably going to become harder. Yeah,
3: no, I I think that's right. I mean because. As I say, Trump's views, which were, you know, initially regarded as frightfully shocking in Britain, and people were signing uh, petitions to keep him out of the country, I think, as I say, are now there are now people saying, well. Maybe maybe he's got a point, and you'll
1: get more of that. And then, just finally, briefly, Rula, what do you see happening next in terms of Europe? Because they are knee-deep in this deal with Turkey at the moment to try and at least tackle the next wave of the migrant <laughs> crisis. Now, just it's worth pointing out that whenever I've spoken to people on the, um, the the Leave campaigns, they've always said to me privately the two things that could really swing public opinion on this referendum. One is the migrant crisis, which, as you've written about, is very much going to pick up steam soon. And two is a terrorist incident. I think one of those has happened, the other one looks very likely to happen.
2: Well, I think the remain campaign must be hoping praying that this deal with Turkey actually sticks. The problem with it obviously is that from a logistical point of view and you know even from a legal point of view, it's qu- it's questionable. I doubt that it'll be smooth, but even if it manages to reduce the flows even slightly, I think that would help. Yeah.
3: And uh, the difficulty is actually that the, the Turkey deal, on the other hand, opens up a new vulnerability because I was just listening to one of the leave people on the radio this morning saying, you know, David Cameron has just signed a deal allowing 70 million Muslim Turks to travel to Europe without visas. So you, you, you kind of can't win. The other thing I would point to, actually, is that in the la- in the weeks before the uh, referendum on June the 23rd, the European Football Championships start in France, and people regard it as a potential security risk because, uh, you know, England are playing Russia in Marseille, uh, that kind of thing. So I, I, that that's something I would watch out for. Even if there's no actual attack, they're talking about possibly closing stadiums and playing games behind closed doors. And that kind of thing, I think, will, you know, this is the European championships, might affect the general atmosphere in the run up to the vote.
1: And I ask everyone who comes on our FT Politics podcast, Ruler, what do you think is going to happen in the referendum? We'll stay. And Gideon, I think it's 50 I wouldn't want to hazard a guess now. And now on to the Tory wars, which have returned with full force over the past week. Ian Duncan Smith, now the former Work and Pension Secretary, resigned in bombastic style last Friday over George Osborne's latest budget, which he said was unfair and penalising the poorest. The Tory party then split into two about whether just had a point or whether he was just grandstanding over the EU referendum. So George Parker, it all seems rather a long time ago now. A day a day now seems a long time in politics. Um, Of them, a lot has happened. Not least the Brussels attacks we talked about earlier. Where is the party at the moment? You know, we saw particularly his own department split about whether his resignation was the right or the wrong thing to do. But the sort of seems to be a rallying around David Cameron and George Osborne since last Friday's events.
4: Yeah, I think there's been a sense that after Prime Minister's Question Time, especially where David Cameron completely duffed up Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, and rallied the party, that some semblance of unity has returned, but I think it's only a semblance of unity. I think the key thing is, from David Cameron's point of view, that there's an Easter recess coming into view. In fact, there are four parliamentary recesses scheduled between now and the June referendum, which gives you a very good idea of the, the mood of the party and the fact that David Cameron wants them out of the House of Commons as much as possible, because, you know, the Ian Duncan-Smith resignation undoubtedly uh, put a spotlight on, the, on this disunity in the Tory party I think it's probably true to a large extent that Ian Duncan Smith did resign over the way he was treated over welfare cuts. But of course, the calculation would have been that this played into the Tory drama on Europe and actually made it easier for me and Duncan Smith's point of view to win the, the referendum and win the Brexit argument.
1: Because you have sort of like the background, the slideshow running on behind it. Mm. So you can't take that context away from his resignation, despite um, IDS and his outriders being in the pressing, absolutely nothing to do with this or to do with the budget but he's sort of threatened to resign quite a few times before I think you know there's at least two letters were written maybe even as many as four so it's not a surprise to Westminster watchers like us that he has actually gone now
4: yeah there's a sort of a fairly routine um, there's a routine that's played out before every budget an awesome statement that Ian Duncan Smith threatens to resign and it's partly because you know, in Duncan Smith does have a commitment to social justice. A Tory who obviously believes in balanced budgets, but at the same time he believes in improving people's life chances at the bottom. That's genuine, but I think it also plays into sort of the personal animosity between him and George Osborne. George Osborne, frankly, doesn't think he's intellectually up to the job. And he treats, George Osmond has treated Ian Duncan Smith with disdain. And I think that was a big contributory factor to Ian Duncan Smith's resignation on that Friday. The fact that he'd been ordered to go out and defend this policy, the disability cuts the day before, wasn't told during the day that the rug was being pulled out from underneath his feet and that a U-turn was being executed. I mean, how would you feel?
1: Exactly. Well, Janan Ganesh, in your column, you write, this is hardly Michael Jackson leaving the Jacksons when he left, um, which is a nice bit on the normal Paul McCartney leaving the Beatles line most people tend to go for here. So you don't think this is a big sort of threat to the government's stability, but it was still a pretty big political moment when he left, you've got to admit.
5: Yeah, I was with some people from Downing Street on the Friday evening when the news came through, and they did not regard it as a small event. And I I don't mean to suggest that it's uh, unimportant, only that it's not an existential problem, I think, for the government. And it was never likely that George Osborne, as damaged as his leadership chances are, was actually going to lose his existing job as Chancellor of the Exchequer. And then you saw over the course of this week the, the Commons sessions calming things down a little bit, and then apparently David Cameron's turn at the 1922 Committee of Backbenchers, also sooth- um, smoothing some ruffled feathers. So it was, it was a big deal, just not an absolutely mortal wound. I don't rule out the possibility that before June 23rd or the immediate aftermath, especially if it's a very close vote for Remain, that there is a mortal wound. And actually, uh, uh, Ian Duncan-Smith is the least of David Cameron's problems because he's not that unreasonable a guy. There are far more cantankerous Tory backbenchers now. And given the majority is so slim, you know, 12 or 16, depending on how you want to count it, he can't afford more than an absolutely tiny... Number of enemies, and he's now got a, a, an increasing number of enemies on the backbenches.
1: I suppose this is the question everyone's been watching because George Osborne is very well known for his political maneuverings in Westminster and putting his key allies in positions that will be helpful to him if he was to ever run for leader. And Although there has been talk that he might never actually run, but you think his chances have been damaged. Do you think he will even run as and when the next Tory leadership contest comes?
5: Well, in, in, I did a, in this, I think either the first or second edition. Of the book I wrote about him, I ended available in all good bookshops. Well, obviously. exactly, and and Amazon and all the rest of it. I end with a prediction that Chancellor will be the first, last, only job he ever does in government. And I might say in that, and this is this is my view, that he probably won't run, and that if if he calculates that he'll be uncompetitive in an internal Tory Party leadership election, then he wouldn't want to go through the the sort of humiliation of running and then and taking a beating. That's not based on any inside information. That's based on my reading of him as a as a guy. I think his his leadership chances were in pretty bad shape even before this week because he had reversed on tax credits last year, having announced it to, to quite a lot of rapture in the summer budget of last year, and then there was a mini reversal on pension reform back in January or February. So it's sort of the third reversal in a row, and compounded by the fact that the fact that he supports the European Union in this referendum and is doing so quite assertively will necessarily annoy a lot of Conservative members and MPs. So I don't think his leadership chances are in great shape. What I always point out at this juncture, though, is that if you look at the previous pattern of his career, it has all been about extreme volatility, massive highs and massive lows in pretty quick succession. As last summer, he was seen as a shoe in for the leadership after the the budget, which I thought was uh, excessive. Now he's a complete write-off, which I think might be a tiny bit excessive. And it's possible that after June 23rd, if they win comfortably, he's a contender again, albeit by no means favourite.
4: Yeah, I think I think the, I tend to agree with, with Janan on that. I think that George Osborne is comfortable with the fact that he's chancellor and he may never become prime minister. But I've always thought that he's, he's done everything he can to make sure that if the opportunity arises, he will be brilliantly placed to do it. So the people are in place, as you said. At the start, there, Seb, his allies are in all the key positions. He does incredible amount of work behind the scenes that we don't often see, sort of going to marginal constituencies. He's got a he's got a strong base in the party. I agree at the moment his prospects don't look good, but the truth is his fortunes rise and fall with the economy. And you can you can construct a scenario where George Osborne, David Cameron, win the referendum on June the twenty third. They have a, an immediate reshuffle where they try to divide the party into the future and the past and bring in the sort of younger Eurosceptics in an act of reconciliation, bind them into the team, the economy starts to pick up, the forecasts start to look a bit better. And instead of talking about welfare cuts at the next budget, we're talking about tax cuts. You know, that is uh, one scenario. I think it's probably the less likely of the two scenarios that could... That could that's up. the
1: one George Osborne, I think, would
4: very much like to happen. Indeed, yeah, that's the one he would like to happen. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, he's, he's, in, he's in big trouble at the moment. But... You know, we've written on off before. I've written this political bio, uh, obituary at least three times, I think. So, um, I think we just have to <laughs> we have to put this into a sense of perspective. And things that I agree with Jannan. Things look very different at the end of this week than they did at the beginning. And I started the week talking on various radio programs about whether this was a Geoffrey Howe moment. Well, we'll see. But I suspect in twenty-five years' time, we are not going to be able to recite. Passages of Ian Duncan Smith's resignation letter, in the way that some of us tragically can still do with Jeffrey Howe's resignation speech.
1: <laughs> but I think one thing we have definitely learned this week, George, is that Tory failure does not mean Labour success. And you know, the Labour Party, this is the the big, you know, whether it is a Jeffrey Howe moment or not, it is one of the biggest challenges david cameron's leadership has faced you know in terms of you know ian duncan smith is very popular with the party and he's a very senior member of the cabinet yet labour have completely failed to make any political capital out of this now there's some corbynites who have said oh well this is all jeremy corbyn's framing of the budget around disability cuts now i would argue it was more to do with tory backbenchers in the media but there we get into a nice little um feedback loop but watching Jeremy Corbyn at Prime Minister's questions this week, it was really extraordinary the fact that he didn't mention Ian Duncan Smith because Ian Duncan Smith's resignation letter should have been Labour script. They should have been reading that endlessly to say this government is unfair, we're not all in this together, and it wasn't mentioned at all. And then on top of that, we had this brilliant list that divided Labour MPs into four categories from core to hostile. Um, and the FT comment desk did the buzzfeed test of this, and we were split between poor, negative and hostile. So for all our listeners, well, obviously fair and there. I mean, what did you make Labour this week?
4: Well, I mean, terrible, but I mean, the bar bar for Jeremy Corbyn succeeding is set incredibly low. I mean, on the Monday, as you say, he had a chance to um, exploit Ian Duncan Smith's resignation and then actually failed to mention Ian Duncan Smith once, which caused astonishment on the Labour benches. And then, as you say, on Wednesday at Prime Minister's Question Time, He was uh, demolished. Uh, I think Quentin Letts in the Daily Mail said it was like seeing a boiled egg being crushed by an oncoming express train. It was that bad. And the thing is that he is now, Jeremy Corbyn is the object of ridicule from a large part of his party. And when this list emerged, uh, John Speller, who I think was placed, who's a sort of troublemaker on the uh, the Labour sort of uh, right... Um, was described as core negative, and he was very upset that he was only described as core <laughs> negative and actually had a badge made up to that effect and asked whether he could appeal and to be put into the hostile group. And, you know, the, the, sort of, the level of mockery is intense, and I've rehearsed this argument before on the podcast, and I'll rehearse it again. It is so bad, I can't see Jeremy Corbyn lasting the year.
5: I have slightly revised my view, which was the same as everyone else in Westminster, that he would last until 2020. But you look at performances as excruciating as that, and you begin to wonder... And the other clue, and I I think people have begun to pick up on it this week, is that a lot of Labour backbenchers of some distinction, former cabinet members, shadow cabinet members, are almost ignoring Corbyn in the Commons chamber and directly opposing the government over his head. So we saw Yvette Cooper in particular asking some very rigorous, good questions of George Osborne during Treasury questions in a way that suggested that she was almost de facto opposition leader or de facto holder of the Treasury brief, in a way that was completely ignoring Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him. I think the conclusion that uh, the moderates have reached is that that is their best hope. You almost run parallel parties within the Commons Chamber as long as Jeremy Corbyn is there being useless. I I think that his performance in PMQs is quite telling and that I don't think Jeremy Corbyn or the people around him are that interested in politics. So the idea of getting a scalp in the form of George Osborne or at least doing damage to the government comes a long way behind just changing what the Labour Party stands for. And their mission is, in five years' time, to make the party a very left-wing party on economics plus a unilaterally disarming party on nuclear weapons, borderline pacifist in foreign policy generally. And that internal mission to change what Labour stands for means far more to them than the the, the sport – of laying blows on the government even very substantial blows potentially fatal blows like getting rid of a chancellor
4: or even winning elections for that matter. oh totally
5: yeah and that's the problem that the corbynites out in the party out in the
4: country the people who joined the party after, after he became leader they, the metric of success i agree with you is not winning elections mm. where they can actually be in a position to help the people they purport to, to, mm. to be there to help it's it's rather changing the labor party and that's a very different different metric
1: and finally just very briefly George we obviously have a new work and pension secretary in the form of Mr Stephen Crabb who was the Welsh secretary who's a figure who is watched with much interest in Westminster coming from a a very blue-collar background and has had great success in rebuilding the party in Wales and um, where it was once totally wiped out is now slowly getting back again what do you make of him want to watch for the future I think definitely so and
4: I'm like a a number of uh, political correspondents in Westminster who have taken Mr Crab out for lunch and we thought we were the only people who'd spotted this potential. It turns out he's had lunch with every single one of my colleagues. So we're all tipping him for the future. Yeah, he's got a very interesting life story. He's an instant um, riposte to the idea that Tories don't understand uh, the lives of poorer people because he comes from a difficult background Uh, grew up in a council house in, in Wales. And... He made a very confident debut, I thought, it was, um, as uh, the new Work and Pension Secretary, de- defending the, the U-turn, and did it in quite a of stylish and bullish way, and actually delivered, I thought, quite a, a brave swipe at uh, George Osborne. He said, "You know, we people, we're not talking here about numbers on a spreadsheet. These are real people's mm-hmm. lives, and we we sometimes in government forget that." And it was fairly clear
1: who he was talking about mm-hmm. that. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for the next instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening.
2: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our FT News podcasts, which focus on one of the main issues of the day and bring you the insights and expertise of our global network of journalists, as well as outside contributors. You can download these at ft.com slash podcasts most days of the week.